Hey, I'm excited to be back. It's an episode of Connect This. Uh, I'm that was pretty great. Our our one fan has done a wonderful job of of making their applause sound like it's a, a boisterous room. And uh, um, I'm just gonna I'm gonna add Travis here. I see him sitting in the backstage area. Welcome back, Travis. Hello, hello. Uh, sorry, a little latency here on the cable modem at my house. So we'll see so how this works. Did you just swap it out real quick? What did you do in five minutes? I think inquiring minds want to know. Well, you know, what do you always do with technology? Reboot. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful to have you back. For people in the Casey Lied fan club, we'll introduce him in a second. But if it's your first time coming, just because Casey's here, Travis runs USI Fiber in Minneapolis and uh, has been the co-host of the show since we started. In fact, I think kind of is the reason that we have the show. Good job, Mr. Mitchell. Well done. Thank you. And it looks like Kim's here, who's only been on the show like 40 times, so I feel like she's our co-host. Huh? Which is not as many as birthdays as she's had, as we established uh, yes. last week, um, or two weeks ago. Uh, we have the ticker running, Rye, so when you have a sec, just pull that off. I know, right? There you go. Wow, that was fast. It's like I'm clairvoyant. Uh, Kim McKinley from Utopia Fiber, the chief marketing officer, but also does tons of other things, too. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Still celebrating that we're in summer here in Utah. Uh, I don't want to be in the zero degree weather that's coming in the few months. So ah, I'm so excited. I can't wait to not be sweating. <laughs> he says wearing long sleeve t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted, I wanted to get a little uh, tribal broadband boot camp uh, shout out here. Cause we had a great one last week. That's where I was. And then we have uh, Casey lied with Keller and Heckman, a partner at Keller and Heckman. Welcome. Thanks Chris. Good to be here for number 50. My first time, uh, so. Yeah, but no stranger to this space. Um, for people who aren't aware, um, you are the the person behind the scenes that, uh, this is by far not the most important thing you do, but like <laughs> you're the person that sends out multiple times a week the, the e uh, email broadband digest from Keller and Heckman that is wonderful and candidly always helps to set the agenda for these shows. Good, glad to hear it. <laughs> And uh, Casey, you've been uh, working this space for uh, for a long time, which is just my way of saying longer than me, because uh, you're one of the early people I got to know in it. So uh, it's, it's wonderful to have you on the show. But I know you bring a wealth of experience uh, to law, particularly working with municipal and cooperative clients, but also other clients. You've been focused totally on telecom in that time, I think. Yep. Yep. Entirely that that time. And then and then our, you know, fairly. A uh, relatively narrow niche of clientele, non-traditional providers, I guess you could say. You're right. Yep. It's been an interesting interesting place to be for a long time. Yeah, for people who, who aren't as familiar, um, Keller & Heckman um, uh, was, uh, um, is, a, is a law firm that, that uh, Jim Baller and uh, at that time it was Baller, Stokes & Lyde uh, joined together. Um, so if you've heard Jim Baller's name, uh, Casey is one of the people that did all the work while Jim took all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> He's not watching today. He's on vacation, so you can say that. I think it's okay. <laughs> and he would know, of course, that we all have tremendous respect for each other. So, um, the uh, the topics for today are going to be, um, I think, pretty exciting. Uh, frankly, uh, it's an issue. The top issue is one that uh, we've discussed multiple times, um, which has to do with. Uh, two of the big winners in Ardoff and, and what was going to happen with their awards. We're going to talk about that. Uh, I've been itching to talk about streaming and all the talk about whether or not 
uh, people saying that streaming is too costly and it's just a cable model all over again um, and where that falls down. Uh, so I've sort of shuffled that into the agenda. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening with Universal Service Fund uh, because um, I started reading the report and then got overloaded, but Casey's read it uh, and, and I'm sure that we all have opinions about the future of Universal Service. Uh, we have a special guest coming on to talk a little bit about what California is doing and in particular, kind of an interesting uh, thing that just happened at the CP. PUC about whether or not they're going to require a low-income uh, tier for publicly subsidized networks. Uh, and then we're probably going to run out of time at some point, but there's a couple of other agenda items. Uh, before we dive into that, Kim, um, I, I feel like uh, we had uh, the passing of someone. And um, and frankly, this, this is happening too commonly now. Uh, and uh, we obviously don't have the a chance to always note everyone uh, that's touched our lives, but uh, we wanted to make sure that we said something about Scott Lemke. Yes, Scott Lemke, who was at Nokia when he passed, but unfortunately he passed over the weekend at the age of 64. But uh, Scott is lived in Utah, but he has a close relationship to Utopia. He was working at Riverstone, and when was Riverstone back in the day, if, you, if you've been in this industry for too long? Um, and then Alcatel-Lucent acquired them and then uh, went over to Nokia when that, that acquisition happened. But uh, he was one of the original people who helped design the Utopia Fiber Network back in the day. So he it was always a supporter. I always heard people tell me that Scott was talking about what was happening, uh, that the Utopia story. So he is somebody we will great we will miss. He was so um, he was just a kind and gentle soul, and uh, it, he will really be missed because this is a very small industry, and we tend to all know each other. So. Um, I just have uh, my thoughts and prayers to his family and all the people he worked with uh, around the country. Thanks, Kim. Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, we've lost several people this year and uh, it is worth remembering. I feel like we're, ta we're tackling these topics that are so big. You know, how do we connect everyone, hundreds of millions of, of homes? How do we solve these problems? And yet uh, individuals make tremendous differences. Uh, I just, I continue to be, um, find it funny that I feel like in um, here in the upper Midwest, I don't know if Travis um, knew optical solutions back in the day, uh, but oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that North Dakota has so much fiber is because of a salesperson at optical solutions is my understanding of how the story goes and the fact that people really trusted him and they knew that if they committed to a new technology that he was going to be there for them when things went wrong and he did and that's why we see so much investment in north dakota and minnesota where his clients um, bought those solutions and I, i'm just blanking on his name which is like you know would have made the story a lot better yeah, I, I knew Dwayne Sapp over there because that was, didn't they turn into ultimately uh, Calix? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Randy, but, and Randy's a great name for a salesperson, so let's assume it was Randy. What Way All to right. go, Chris. You really had this, like, great like, story <laughs> without the name. Hey, you know me, I like to wander out on branches, and sometimes it's worth it, and sometimes uh, I, I'm, like, 95% of the time, I'm like, why am I out here? This, this is the most exciting thing, though. I feel like I was deeply worried about the Federal Communications Commission just not doing anything on some of the big awards that are problematic, um, pr predominantly LTD and Starlink. Um, these are, um, uh, this is a Rural Digital Opportunity Fund. Uh, there was, uh, I think, a lack of, of work that was done on the front end to make sure they had qualified bidders and to really think through the implications of having um, a subsidy go to Starlink in this manner. Um, 
I've long said I feel like Starlink is a cool enough technology that we might want to think about subsidizing it, but um, but not in this manner. And LTD is a company that I had, I have deep concerns about their ability to scale at the size that they would have had to, and also just their ability to provide a high quality network today based on what we see from uh, the networks. And the FCC uh, formally rejected them. So, uh, you know, Casey, I'm just curious, we haven't heard your opinion on this all this time. Um, did the news that they actually took action on this, did that surprise you or did you see it coming? No, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't say it was surprising. Um, you know, I share uh, some of your thoughts about the FCC's um, uh, challenges early on in the program. You know, they wanted to make it generally widely available to a lot of players. So there's this tension and they wanted to be inclusive at the same time they had the responsibility to be stewards of the funding. I wasn't surprised by their action against LTD and, and Starlink. Um, I, I would say that the LTD uh, action you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say the FCC is making a pronouncement about fixed wireless. You know, I, I don't think mm -hmm. that's entirely what's going on here. LTD had a number of issues. Uh, they had issues getting ETC status in various states. There was a lot going on there that really went into that decision. And they were but, supposed to build fiber out. I mean, it wasn't. That's not even a fixed wireless issue, really. Yeah, it was. It was a mix, right? But. Um, you know, on the on the Starlink side, not really surprising at all, especially with the Ookla data that came out that showed that their performance was was maybe not up to snuff. You know, but I, you know, there's a there's a contrarian view you could take on the Starlink piece, I guess, and that is, you know, I, I saw a, a piece uh, I think uh, it was Mike Conlow's uh, uh, Substack blog recently that did a, a takedown of of how far bead funds are going to go in each of the states, right? And in some states, the bead funds are going to pretty much cover all of the unserved and underserved in a particular state. But then you have places like Kansas, where, according to his calculation, the funding that Kansas is going to get under the bead program will cover about 10% of all of the unserved and underserved locations in the state. So now they have to cover also those places that Starlink would have gotten funding for. So there is a a way to squint your eyes at this a little bit and say, well, gosh, now they have so much more they have to cover, right, with limited funds. Now, you can also say, well, that's that means that those people who would otherwise just be relegated to Starlink are going to have something much better. And that's a perfectly you know, valid response. But I think if I'm a state broadband uh, grants manager, I'd be looking at this and saying, well, that means we have so much more to do in our state. Now, if you're a rural provider or a cooperative or somebody who had a Starlink area right next door and you were looking to serve that area, or maybe even especially as a cooperative, you might have already had an obligation to serve those areas. This is great news because now you're eligible for the bead funding. But there are a few different ways to look at it. Mm -hmm. Kim, how do you look at it well, through big glasses? I, first of all, I just think that Casey can't be on the show. He sounds so professional and knowledgeable <laughs> the rest of us. But uh, I look at it as, well, first of all, I was like, well, did... Uh, I thought it was because Elon Musk really just uh, screwed up the Twitter thing. So they just wanted to take her out with Starlink. So. <laughs> That's what Jessica, uh, FCC chair, Jessica Rosenworcel's concerns were, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But I think Rosenworcel said something interesting about the LTD um, because they didn't really clarify of why the LTD didn't get the money. But she did say, she was like, well, them failing to go past whatever stage in seven states really didn't help their case that they had enough capacity to build out all these networks. Um, I, I agree. I agree with Casey. I think the UCLA data for Starlink just kind of sold their destiny. It, it, 
everybody was questioning if they could keep the capacity up and the UCLA data kind of came in and put the hammer to it and said, no, they can't. And maybe in a few years they can, maybe when Travis is back in his RV, but today they can't. Well, I think neither one of you has mentioned costs, but I think that's also oh, another yeah. significant issue. And and one that I hope that they deal with with other grantees is um, we shouldn't be seeing $100 a month service to low-income households and, and that sort of a thing. Travis? Well, I just hope whoever they give the money to actually does some good with it. Because I'll tell you one thing about Starlink, and you can read through the Starlink threads online there are hundreds and hundreds of people a day that are elated with the fact of finally for the first time in their life actually having a broadband connection at their property mm -hmm. and I, I just hope the money that they give out to whoever they actually get there and we just don't find out in five years from now we have our second once in a lifetime opportunity to serve these people and for five years they've had nothing so you know but that's why yeah, i mean that's my usual take on everything. But is. this is, I mean, this is my point is that, and I feel like I'm, nobody likes me because I'm like, yes, we should give money to Starlink, but no, not this way. <laughs> because like, I've always felt it was unfair to basically say to some households, um, hey, you know, like everyone else is getting a terrestrial service, but like, you're going to get the same stuff that anyone else could get also, but we're just like giving your money to Starlink. And, um, and so I think that as long as we're going on a household by household basis, we should be bringing terrestrial solutions to them. And then in addition, I feel like it could be worth it to support Starlink. Uh, I was just out in Oregon, um, you know, in, for the tribal broadband bootcamp. Have I mentioned that we did a fourth tribal broadband bootcamp? And, um, and we were working with Oregon Hazards Lab, which is part of the University of Oregon, which was a host and it was terrific to work with everyone there. Um, but like they use Starlink out in the field. And uh, and I think Starlink is like this technology that's super important and no one here is, is, is doubting that. But I do think some of the people that, that um, look to us for guidance um, <laughs> may have doubts about Starlink. And I, I feel like it's important. Go ahead, Kim. I was just going to say, I think that they took back the money so we could have a new federal um, program of the week for Travis. To yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what, well, what is it this week? Because, you know, the, the, the reality is people could install Starlink today. I mean, I've used, well, you know, you've, you've I mean, I've, I've been the rolling experiment. I mean, LT, LT, um, LTE broadband is, is just horrible. And, you know, especially in rural areas and, and Starlink is amazing in rural areas. Now, the problem you run into a Starlink, though, and I is these people all the, they're just fixated on speed tests mm -hmm. and they need to get past the speed tests and just get down to the usability of it. And Five percent of Starlink's data is speed tests. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all they're doing is speed tests over and over it's and over again. But, but, but if you want to stream media or you know do things like we're doing here and you're out in the rural area and potentially could be five years before a fiber cable comes in front of your house. It's a heck of a technology right now. Yep. Um, this is actually um, an opportunity to, to transition into USF because I think where this money goes um, will be decided by that. So I'm gonna we're gonna come to that in a second. Before we leave Ardoff, though, I wanted to plug something that uh, folks here at the Institute for Local Self Reliance did. We've been running an Ardoff dashboard for people that want to keep track of of where the money's been going and whatnot, who's gotten it, 
And uh, Rai has a screenshot up of some of the graphs, but it's all just been recently updated. So, um, and I think that you'll see a link in the chat pop up magically here uh, for where people can get more information about that. So, um, you know, if you are interested in, in art off and you want to see kind of have a sense of, of who's getting the money, I mean, some of that money is building fiber networks right now, literally as we speak or as you listen. And uh, um, I think that's pretty exciting. Now, as to where the money goes, this is um, on the order of $2 billion that is not going to be distributed to LTD and Starlink now. And uh, that money should be redistributed to the second round of ARDOF. But we don't know if there will be a second round of ARDOF because the whole future of the universal service system is in doubt. Um, not so much that it'll be there, but what it will look like. And so I, I thought that since we have Casey here, it would be a great opportunity to just throw them him the hot potato of, of um, this week, the FCC released a, a, a report um, uh, that uh, details its thinking on this. Congress will have to uh, weigh in on it, but the FCC has been thinking about the future of the Universal Service Fund. And uh, I'm just curious, Casey, what do, what do you make of it? Well, um, you know, to, to, to lay the groundwork for the conversation, I guess. So this, this report was required under the Infrastructure Act uh, for, FC, for the FCC to take a look at the Universal Service Fund and and offer its thoughts on the ongoing sustainability of it. The, the, the big issue is that the contribution base for universal services going down as more services are shifting away from, quote, telecommunication service and onto broadband and things that are not accessible currently under the universal service program. So what do you do about that in the future? And that's what the FCC was sort of tasked to look at, the future of the universal service fund. So this report came out earlier this week and it's interesting in a lot of uh, several different ways, at least to lawyers, I guess. Um, uh -oh. uh, <laughs> here we go. No, it's <laughs> no, it's really um, they, they, there's a few uh, a number of issues beyond just kind of the, the, the narrow question of the future of the universal service program. But the I guess the most notable part for most listeners is, is, is sort of um, how are they addressing that contribution base issue? And they take it a couple of different approaches to it. First of all, you can try to address that contribution base issue by having by assessing a broader base of services. That is, you can extend potentially the contribution base to include broadband internet access. And, and there's a number of parties that have advocated for that. Once you do that, the contribution percentage goes down from the neighborhood of 25 or 30 percent where it is right now. And some estimates are that it would take that down to four or five percent. But the so FCC many of us would many of us would see a small decrease in our cell phone bills, mm -hmm. uh, which are have a small assessment for the USF, right? And we would see an increase potentially in our internet access bill. Yeah, and the estimate that the FCC said in this report as to what uh, the increase in the broadband bill might be, and they're they're citing other studies here, was on a hundred dollar broadband bill, you might see an increase of in the neighborhood of four dollars, right? So. So the FCC is sort of concerned with that because they don't want to be put in the position of making broadband more expensive right when they're trying, right when everybody's trying to push it out to everybody. And so that is something that clearly in this report is, is a real concern for the FCC. The, so, you know, that is broadening the base of the services. The other way to approach this contribution base issue is to broaden the base of entities to which it is their subject. And so right now, as I mentioned, 
only providers of telecommunications, telecommunication service and interconnected voice over IP need to pay into the fund. Okay. So, okay, let's, let's, uh, you know, they're taking sort of almost a, a cue from the net neutrality angle here in title two and saying, well, why don't we broaden it and say, let's include streaming video providers and digital advertising firms and cloud services companies, Facebook, they, Google, Amazon, sure, Netflix. Exactly. Right. Right. Maybe they should kick in a little bit given that they're benefiting so much from all this infrastructure. Right. And, and the FCC actually seemed kind of favorable to that and, and more favorable to that than I think I, I probably would have guessed before the report. The problem. No one likes those companies now. Let's, uh, before you get to the problem of it, I just want to know, like, I mean, it, like, there's some people like Commissioner Carr and Symington who I feel like are performatively making this point because they see their political future. And this is me talking. You don't have to agree with me, Casey, because you have to have relationships with, with more of these um, the people behind the scenes. But my lay perspective is that they're trying to have like they were just trying to ride the wave of conservative politics, which is anti big tech. And they're like, yeah, let's tax those guys. Those guys suck. That's what I see out of them. I happen to agree with them, but not for those reasons. <laughs> <laughs> So should we talk about the problem with that now? Yeah, I think so. So I mean, I think you did. I mean, that's a so like the idea is basically like who else could we tax um, yeah. in order to do this? And Facebook and Google, um, I'm you know, digital advertising would be one avenue. Streaming would be a different. I love the idea of taxing digital advertising. I just I do feel like um, uh, digital advertising is something we that is annoying, and you want to tax things that are annoying more than you want to tax things that we like, like streaming. So I thought that's sort of like as a policy person, where one of the things I think about. Well, the other the other compelling policy purpose for that is that they can't very readily pass it through to to consumers, right? And and that was the problem the the problem with adding it to broadband. It's really easy just to pass it through on a bill, and you see it right on your bill. The FCC seems to not to want to do that very much. But if you start if you add the fee to streaming video or digital advertising, especially, it's not so easy for them to put a line item on you know, a broadband user's bill in that context. And I think that is actually very appealing to the FCC. Um, but the problem is a legal one from the FCC's perspective, because as it's set up right now, the commission would need to find that those entities to which they want to apply the obligation to pay in provide interstate telecommunications. And I, I don't think there's any plausible way to say, in most cases at least, that a streaming video provider or a digital advertising firm, I mean, that would be a real reach for the FCC or anybody else, in my opinion, to say that those entities fall within that definition. So under the FCC is basically saying, under our Section 254 permissive authority, we really don't have the authority to assess it on those providers. Right. Congress, please help us. And so right. call their bluff. If, if, if the next Congress would be dominated by Republicans and they do want to go after big tech, they could do this and give the FCC that power. But unless Congress acts, the FCC can't just go out there and do it. Yeah. And that's really the theme throughout this report. Honestly, the FCC is, is really saying, you know, our hands are our, our options are fairly limited. We need congressional help to do to really fix this program, to be honest. So, um, Kim and Travis, are you guys excited at the prospect of having to tell your customers you're going to charge them more, but uh, it's all in the in, in the service of making the Universal Service Fund more fair? I'll let Travis go first for once. Go ahead, Travis. Well, it's inevitable when there'll be a tax line item on their internet bill. It, we'll just see. We'll just see who actually pushes it through and under what uh, 
you know, what premise, but you know, the reality is any of these taxes and fees, they'll get passed along to the consumer anyways. So if, if the advertising company gets charged, they'll charge more for the advertising, the product will get charged more. It's just, it's just more indirect taxing of, of the end user. So if your mission is to drive broadband costs down, any of this will, will not make that happen. It, everything will, it'll continue to go up. I still predict Doug Dawson's hundred dollar internet will okay. be here sooner than you, than you want to, than you want to think. No, I, I agree with you, Travis. Um, but I do want to um, thank you, Casey, for the cliff notes, because um, I made it through page like up to page 10 in the infrastructure bill. So now I know I don't have to read this piece of documentation. <laughs> um, this, so let me just let me just give a plug to the FCC, because I, I did I showed this on Twitter. Like, I feel like this document, the USF reform document, um, even if you just want to read the first five pages, you will learn a lot about the history of the, yeah. FC, of the universal service. It's written in an accessible manner. It's friendly. Yeah. It's quick. Uh, so, you know, the whole report may not be for people, but honestly, if you care about this stuff and you're a little bit confused by it, if you spend five or 10 minutes looking at that document, I think you could learn quite a bit. Absolutely. So what you're saying is they watched Connect This last time and said, can we be able to read this without <laughs> going to sleep? Fair enough. I think, I think you're right. I think what I hate is right now I have a flat fee. I'm like, here's what you're going to get on your bill to the user, right? It's $65 all in cost to you. Now, then you have to add a tax, then it gets all confusing. What is your bill today? What is it going to be tomorrow? And then I think that providers are going to use this and um, inflate some of their other costs because they have this tax there that they can add another line item that they can get extra um, cash from. So I think you're going to see sneaky tactics by some of the providers out there um, in, in order to um, increase the bill in their favor. So I don't re I'm not really excited about it, but I understand like Travis said that this is we've known that this is coming and it's amazing how many like politicians you talk to or people at city offices who have no idea that broadband is not taxed right now right you know kim kim to your point uh, about you know the you know sneaky tactics or or whatever you know that's going on right now mm -hmm. and on top of that it's just can get really complicated compliance right now with the universal service fund for broadband providers is is something we do very regularly <laughs> because you're in a you're in a position well okay is this ethernet circuit telecommunications oh well am i providing it to an isp am i doing it on a private carriage basis is it therefore exempt i mean these these questions swirl around this program it is so counterintuitive it's very complicated and gets a lot of companies in trouble who are trying to do the right thing and then years later they find out they didn't do the right thing but then usac calls them on the carpet for it and they're subject to eight or 10 years of, of past payments. And so there are some real problems with the program from just a, a usability and, and you know, overcomplicated <laughs> square peg round hole issue that I wish could be fixed somehow, maybe as, as part of this reform effort. I think Travis is going to wake up in a cold sweat tonight based on what you just said. No, no. I, I mean, if you've, if you've ever seen a telecommunications <laughs> bill from some of the big providers, it's unreal. I think the last time there was like 16 line items on the right, board. but a lot of those are invented. A lot of those aren't real. Like, I mean, oh, some you, of those. Oh, you, oh, you think they're facility fee charged? But you know, it's a dollar. It's 80 cents. Are you going to sit on hold for 12 hours to try to debate the topic with them? No, you just pay it and move on. You know, that's that's the problem. To a customer service rep who has no idea why it's on the bill. Yeah, and you know the worst part is when there when there gets when there's tax on the internet service, it's going to be up to Kim and I to try to explain it to people. <laughs> They're going to be well, so mad, and the phone's going to be ringing off the hook, mm -hmm. like it's like we invented this. That's the well, irony. That, of I mean, let's, let's be clear here. Like, like for the four of us, the idea that our 
our bills would go up $4 a month, which is less than what Charter raises our rates every year anyway for their customers, you know, but in order to make sure that, you know, 20 million families are able to um, afford internet access, um, you know, that's why we have government. I mean, the question I think we have is I think there's an assumption the money may not be spent well that comes with your hostility, Travis, but like, um, I feel like, you know, we need to find a way to make sure that we're able to do this. I don't know that that ACP is doing it right. You know, like I feel like if we have 49 million eligible families, that might be too many that we're trying to subsidize. But like in that 20, 30 million area, like, I mean, the U.S. has significant poverty problems. We really have to work on this. But like that money has to come from somewhere. And and it frankly, it can't come from congressional appropriations or it's going to run out like like we may see ACP run out in 2024. You know, they did consider that in this report. They, you know, they went through various options. And one of the options was just, just have direct congressional appropriations for that, for this. The problem is that universal service needs to be stable and congressional appropriations are, are not that, right? Um, so they kind of, you know, it seemed to me fairly quickly rejected that out of hand. Um, there was some interesting discussion, and this is something to keep an eye on, uh, about a new proceeding exploring uh, various high-cost program options, because right now, uh, you know, what they did was they acknowledged that sustainability of some of these programs is, or some of these projects, may be an issue. So it looks like they're they're moving toward a a uh, a sustainability support effort, which is interesting to me. Um, when because they're saying, well, our we're, we're essentially have a situation where we're requiring providers to provide things at a certain rate. Uh, other grant programs may support the capital investment down the road. You know, their operating expenses may not be that sustainable. So if you use this program to support sustainability down the road, that's something that they're considering. Apparently, are going to launch in a, in a new proceeding sometime in the near future. Um, we're going to be moving on. There's a bunch of I'll get, back, I'll get you in a second, Travis. Um, we can't talk too much more about this. I do want to know. There's a ton more to talk about. Um, you know, how does the FCC think about reliability? How does the FCC think about affordability? A uh, number of interesting questions that are raised by that. So um, I, uh, I just want to know there are more to talk about. I'm sure we'll talk more about it in the future. We wanted to raise it up here, but we have other topics we'll have to get to. Travis, you had your hand up. I, I guess just because I don't even know what we're, we're all this. They collect $8.4 billion a year. What do they do with yeah. all this? Money? So, okay. So basically think of it as like rural, there's four buckets, rural, poor, schools, hospitals. And um, some of the money goes to providing Wi-Fi and connections to schools um, or providing hospital networks. So a lot of the money goes to the rural high cost support, which has 13 sub programs. I learned, I didn't know it was that many. That's where um, Ardoff comes from. Right. Um, and, and previously the, the horrible, awful Connect America Fund. Um, and, then, and then finally Lifeline, which is, you know, that, that connection that was it's $9.25 subsidy that's more or less irrelevant for the scale of broadband, but has been effective for getting people uh, mobile phones uh, due to a variety of ways in which it's implemented. So um, that's where that money goes each year. An E-rate. I, I don't know if you took. Right. That's the schools. Cool. Yeah. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't say E-rate, but that's the, the schools and the Wi-Fi and the connections to schools. Um, uh, and we did have one person that asked a question um, and uh, just wrapping up art off. And then we're going to bring Shana on. And um, uh, this is a question that uh, we've wrestled with a bit in the past that I uh, have strong feelings of. And, and basically it's that I don't want to categorically get rid of funding 
uh, wireless, but I have deep reservations about how we do it because public funds should be spent on technologies that have a very long life and will serve the community for a long future. So I don't know if anyone else has any quick thoughts on that. I don't, I don't like using public funds for uh, fixed wireless, but I, I agree. I think if you're going to do it, you need to put it in the ground for a long lasting 20 to 30 year investment, not a five to seven year turnaround. I guess I'd like the money to go to competent operators. You know, there's there's very good WISPs out there. There's very good fiber providers. I I didn't know who the company was that had all that RDOF money, so I Googled it. You know, the one with the, the billion-some dollars. You know, that's, that's charter. So I guess the question is, you'd ask yourself, would a billion-two be better served by a bunch of high-quality WISPs than charter? Yeah, let the debate begin. But I yeah. think WISP could create, like, a, a lot of WISP out there are putting fiber in the ground. So, exactly. yeah, so if it's a WISP that's transitioning the technology, I think that's a whole different conversation than just putting yep. wireless equipment up. Yeah, and I um, I am horrified at how much public money is going to charter. We've been highlighting they, um, they, they both uh, had heavy-duty lobbying with the Montana and how they set up their broadband program, and now they're being there's a, there's a bit of a scandal, I think, but a, not, at least notable event that um, they're getting a ton of the money, and it looks like they have basically just picked areas that were growing anyway and and cut off the more rural areas that actually need the funding. And Charter is just, they're a bad actor and it's it's frustrating how good they are at lobbying and how much um, people just give them over and over again. Um, this is an interesting segue to uh, Shana Englund, who is the uh, Digital Equity Initiative Director at the California Community Foundation. Um, Shana, uh, you and I work together uh, on a variety of things in Los Angeles County and beyond, scheming to, to get people better internet access. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Long time listener, first time participant. I'm very nervous. <laughs> well, you you did a wonderful job on the the Broadband Bits podcast, so we have no doubt you'll be here. I, I did want to knock you off your your toes for a second and just say I did not know you went to Harvard, so it was nice working with you. But um, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, um, it was grad school. Does that make it better? <laughs> no, and there's nothing wrong with Harvard. I just have this total anti elite thing going on, and I feel like the more I'm hanging out with like you know people that have uh, those remarkable credentials, the the more I'm uh, less credible as I rant and rave about how the elites are ruining everything and pretend that I'm not one of them. Um, so Shana, I invited you on to talk about California because I feel like I'm paying less attention on a daily basis to California, counting on you to poke me when interesting things are happening because you're paying so much attention. And I was surprised to find that um, when we were on before on the broadband bits, we talked about how California is paying 100% of the costs to build broadband networks. And now I learned that as of as the current rules are written, there is no requirement to provide a low cost service. And uh, I found that surprising. So uh, is that correct? And can you tell me how we got here? Yes. So uh, that is correct. Um, I was hoping that you were going to try to segue me into invite me to say bad things about Charter Spectrum, because as you know, I love to say bad things about Charter Spectrum and I have any number of bad things to say. So just let me know at any time if you want me to jump there. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, on the affordability, I think when I was on the Broadband Bits uh, uh, podcast, it was the day before um, a CPUC vote that was... Uh, adopting the decision that set all of the rules for $2 billion in last mile funding um, for the state of California. And 
the it had was supposed to be two weeks prior to that. Um, the original proposed decision ha- was actually really remarkably good. Uh, it had very strong affordability requirements. It had strong price uh, price consistency and commitment requirements. It had a and re- retains actually a very strong kind of bias towards public dollars going to durable public assets. All that stuff. Um, the to borrow the um, phraseology of uh, a good friend of both of ours, Paul Goodman from the Center for Accessible Technology, um, the ISPs threw a hissy fit, um, and, I, and that that is his term, and I think we can just adopt that as the technical term for what happened. Um, threw a hissy fit about many provisions within that that PD that they lost on, but on the affordability, they took their hissy fit to the legislature and to others to really turn the screws on the commission to uh, to eliminate those requirements. And so uh, the way that the commission kind of thread the needle was they took the affordability requirements out as requirements. They added them in as um, preferences or kind of within the point system for how applications are going to be considered, put in a ton of points, I think it's 20 points for a generally available affordable option and another I can't remember, like maybe 10 or 20 points out of 130 total um, for that price commitment. Um, that's how they left it. Uh, and that's what the that's what the the commission ultimately adopted. And so um, generally, me, I'm sorry, go ahead. So yeah, I just want to, I feel like Travis, like I always want to make sure that like um, I didn't skip over anything because I would really want to get Travis's reaction to this because like, so what we're talking about here is that in California, these areas that are unserved, California is like, we will pay 100% of the cost to build networks to these areas. But whoever gets that network has to have a $40 a month option on the network for anyone um, as one of the tiers. And um, and I, what, was, what do you remember what the speed was, Shane? I'm guessing they said I'm, it was at 100 megabits. It was probably. 120. So and, they don't have a capital investment at all? None. The state, the state just hands them a network or does it hand them the money? I think money. the state reimburses the costs, I would expect. A hundred percent? A hundred percent. And how long does the $40... Okay, that was my first question. Is $40 considered affordable? Yes. No, because, that's partly well, what we're getting well, at. Well, <laughs> yes a couple, no. <laughs> in theory, it would be coupled with ACP. So it would be $10 to the, to the household, likely. For how um, long? The well, until the, the ACP ran out. But also, yeah, so that there would be a $40 a month commitment for the life of the infrastructure. Forever? Yeah. And it never I mean, goes as long up. as fiber lasts, which, you know, some of the wireless... Well, no, no, but, but, your, but your, operating, your operating costs are not fixed. Your your 2022 operating costs are... Your operating costs are going to be very different in 2032, 2042, 2052. So you're saying in 2052, I'm still charging $40 a month? I so, think probably not, but go ahead, Jana. Well, so I think that one of the interesting things... About about it and what was not really kind of front and center in the conversation, but that in some ways this was a step for the PUC to start to look at broadband and regulating broadband and as a utility, as close as they can possibly get as a utility. Because what they set was a process for um, ISPs and network owners who had built network with these 100% public dollars. And as part of that, set this, uh, agreed to a $40 generally available affordable plan for the life of the network. They set the process for raising that rate the same 
as the process is for raising electric rates or POTS rates or, or the other kind of utilities that go through the PUC. So they were sort of situating this question in the same way that they situate it for other utilities. But they didn't index the speed. And so one of the other things I would say to you, Travis, is that, you know, in 2052, 100 by 20, if that's what it still was, if there was, I'm guessing the way it would work in reality is there would be a negotiation. And, and like Shane is saying, either it would go through that process or there would just be a sense that the legislature would come together and and change things. Um, so nothing is forever on any of these matters. But um, I, I just can't get over the idea that um, the large providers are the ones that are upset, you know, as though, um, as though like AT&T is suddenly going to be losing money on a hundred percent brand new infrastructure built by the state of California because it has to offer a $40 a month service. Um, and, no, and but I you, just, but you, but you kind of understand why. Well, I can understand why from AT&T's point of view, because they're desperate to think that $40 a month is not an appropriate charge for internet access. <laughs> they want people to believe you can't deliver a service for that low of a price. But I have another question for you. Is it like if you give them 100% to subsidize a new provider or a smaller provider to do this, are you growing their footprint? And is that what AT&T is scared of as well? Is that you're helping these smaller ISPs grow into a like into a growth mode that might be where they're directly competing against the um, old infrastructure? That's you know the answer to that, Kim. Yeah, no. <laughs> What's Shana's yes. answer? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I think there's also, you know, the to our, our friend Doug Dawson's uh, prediction about the roll up. I mean, look, I think that they also don't want to be acquiring networks that have that come with that requirement because it would. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of reasons why not. But I think, yeah, the kind of competition piece and that that is actually going to be a through line um, for how all of this money gets spent kind of ir irrespective of the affordability piece um, is that it, you know, it, they went as far as they could under the final rule uh, to preference public projects. Um, that's, that is at least part of the rationale for the hundred percent repayment of the capital costs is that these are public dollars that will go to what will be a public asset. Um, so uh, in that, obviously, raises a lot of competitive concerns around among poor charter spectrum who only had an a beat of 38% this last quarter and only got to do $10 billion in stock buybacks in the first quarter. Mm. Yeah. Casey, I'm curious if you have any um, thoughts. I don't know how, whether you've had any clients, if you look closely at this or, um, or not. Well, the $40 requirement doesn't strike me as too, too, you know, onerous, to be honest. I mean, you know, in the art off context, they have to provide services at rates that are consistent with the urban rate benchmark, right? And that is not much different, not much far off than that. Is it? So this is where I get confused. Is this where it's like two standard deviations? And isn't that like... Um... Now you're talking statistics and you're getting beyond me. <laughs> I thought... So So this is where I'm like, this is where we need Doug. Doug, um, abandoned, <laughs> Doug right. I don't know why Doug schedules anything in his life on Thursdays. He should just leave his calendar open for me whenever I would like to use it. Uh, but that's why Doug's not here today. Um, and uh, But actually, it's nice to bring in uh, new faces. Um but my understanding was like with the, with that the, there is a statistical element to that, and it's like the FCC periodically looks at prices and then has these benchmarks, and you have to be I thought within two standard deviations of certain prices, and that is a very wide variance. <laughs> I don't even think that's macroeconomics, yeah. that's statistics, which actually I do feel like much better about. Fun fact: I took macroeconomics in grad school. <laughs> 
right after I had surgery on my ankles. And it was a class that came right when a Vicodin wave was hitting me for like half of that course. So I have both fond and negative feelings about macroeconomics. So, um, Casey, <laughs> anyway, um, I, did, I derailed your, your thought on that though. No, that's like, about all I have. Or, uh, I, I, you know, can or should say on, I guess at the moment. All right. I'm, I'm confused. So you're going to hand somebody a network for free and all they have to do is commit to having a $40 tier. They don't even really have to commit to that anymore, which is part of the issue. So, yes. I mean, they're obviously it's a, I think it was like a 137 page set of rules. So I'm, I'm a little bit with Kim. I, I, I'm going to say I skimmed it. <laughs> Um, except for some of the, uh, the the key pieces that we're fighting about right now, um, but uh, generally yes. So this and is right meant now, to like build out a build out a network that serves um, a that that serves an area that includes but doesn't have to be entirely unserved census tracts. Um, the PUC is about to come out with a priority areas map that will designate what they think are the the areas that are eligible. So that'll be interesting. Um, but you have to serve people who are who are largely unserved and you have to make these commitments around affordability kind of minimum service and speed standards um and uh and again you don't have to make the commitment on affordability and again that's kind of where the fight is coming again but um they preference it <laughs> you so you are more likely to win this money if you will make that and in fact the other way they thread the needle um which i was kind of like Good, good on you, commissioners. Um, they, uh, in the final decision, they said that this is 100% funding for the network unless you don't make these two commitments. And if you don't make these two commitments, then we have discretion to reduce the percentage of the network that we fund for you. Essentially huh. saying like for reduced public benefit, you get reduced public dollars. This is how the California Advanced Services Fund has gone about things for a bit now. And um, that has worked out well for the two electric co-ops in California who have made good use of this program. Uh, some small providers have made good use for this program. But also California taxpayers are paying 100% of the cost for Frontier, which sucks so bad that I think they're worse than Charter and Charter they're Spectrum. They're not. They're not. <laughs> it depends on it depends on like I think actual local um, local situations. Um, my parents were Frontier customers for a long time, so um, but I, I guess I would say Frontier is more incompetent and less evil than than charter um but but nonetheless like the state is paying 100 of the cost for for charter and frontier to expand their networks right now which i think is asinine. if they not right now uh well if previously the, previous those awards, companies so. actually have to apply for this money which is the other sort of irritating thing about this and back to the earlier conversation about shenanigans um that the big incumbent providers play um you know they are throwing hissy fits left and right around all of this, but they also historically have participated either not at all or incredibly minimally um, in any of these programs. So well, I think, I think Steve Bloom might, um, I'd certainly, I would want to check with him on this, but I remember seeing documentation that Frontier in previous rounds of CASF funding, um, that Frontier and Charter both had projects that were funded 100% by California. And that's what I'm So they did about. both. Frontier and Charter are the only two of the big incumbents that have really participated in okay. any of these programs. Um, but uh, been both pretty minimally, um, like Frontier more than Charter. And also um, like Charter 
I'd say six months. Um, time has lost all meaning for me over the last few years. But uh, at some point in the recent or perhaps distant past, um, Charter actually ended up returning some of the money that they were oh. granted because they uh, decided they weren't able to build out the network. Well, Kim, I, just, I just wanted to know when USI Fiber was going to be in California because I feel like that made the case more than Well, it, Travis, you got to have a conversation with Shana because uh, there's a lot of interesting public-private partnership potential. Wow. In uh, Los Angeles County. Is that a PPPP? <laughs> I think so. Well, I, I was just curious. It Kim, might have been possible public-private partnership <laughs> potential. So it's a 5P. Go ahead, Travis. <laughs> No, I didn't know. Kim, do you know much about this program? Have you heard of this before? I mean, I've heard of this, what this is happening, but I mean, there's so many programs happening in California right now. I think California is being the most aggressive out of any state to connect uh, their entire state. So much money, so much involvement from the CPUC um, and all a lot of organizations throughout California that are really trying to connect. And that was not inevitable. We're talking to Shana in part because Shana has done a wonderful job of getting people involved and lighting a fire in California under people's butts to get moving on this. So uh, this it wasn't an accident. Big, it's interesting the big guys are not participating. I find that interesting. So, Well, historically, well, they haven't been. requirements. Yeah. That they like. Yeah. But you have to think that California just changed their what they classified as broadband. Uh, like it might be a year, it might be two years, and right now we don't know time. But it was six one. I mean, like they are taking leaps and bounds from where they were a couple of years ago to where they are today. AT and T does not totally own Sacramento anymore, uh, and that is a positive change. Casey, you were going to say something. Well, I, I was just saying, you know, that California is obviously throwing a ton of money at this. It's really amazing. Um, but this is all before bead. Has kicked in. I mean, right? But let's, what let's are they going to do then? Let's, let's set some context, <laughs> right? California underserved. <laughs> California is making a historic commitment, but California has like a ninety billion dollars surplus. So also, like, like I mean, I think it's in Minnesota. You know, like you know, you could be like, oh, Minnesota's putting some money in this thing. Minnesota has nine billion dollars that's just sitting there as we wait for the election to be determined because nobody wants to actually do anything when they could possibly have more power in November. And so, like, some of these states, not every state is running out of money right now. Some states that have been decently governed, I might say, even though we might disagree with some of the things they've been doing, um, have massive surpluses and then ability to even do more if they actually wanted to resolve these issues and not just talk about rural challenges, but actually get at the urban challenges that are so much greater in some ways. Yeah. Um, and I did want, I see Ruben uh, mentioned charters promotional rates, um, <laughs> which I, uh, I'm going to take this as my invitation to uh, to vent about charter a little bit. So, um, Ruben, my thoughts about that is I disagree. With, I agree with you. I also dislike that. Um, and they do a bunch of other things with their promotional rates, too. But one of them that's really interesting in this context is uh, we've been doing research. So charter is essentially the monopoly provider for L.A. County. Um, pretty much anywhere you live in L.A. County, you you can get or theoretically can get um, spectrum service and in like a pocket you can get frontier in the wealthy white areas where AT&T built out fiber you can get AT&T um, at you know anything other than like 10-1 um, but it we're LA County is um, is charter spectrum world and um, they uh, so we've been doing some research into what it is that they say they charge since they have been a big part of the opposition around all these affordability measures, not just at the PUC, but also um, in Sacramento and also kind of trying to block some of the work that the county is doing. Um, and what we have found is that shockingly, 
they offer $40 a month for gigabit service in Palisades, in Malibu, in Beverly Hills, um, in Cerritos, which is one of the less famous but very wealthy communities um, in LA County. Um, and then they charge $70 a month for their 500 megabit service and $40 a month if you're lucky for their 100 megabit service. So they're already charging these rates for much more than, uh, for much better service than would be required under this. Um, they're just reserving it for the people who could actually afford to pay quite a bit more. That's so, one yes. of the things I love about providers like Travis and Kim, where they have a rate, mm -hmm. right? They're not engaging in this sort of like, call us and talk to us for 20 minutes. We'll leave you on hold for another hour and then we'll negotiate a rate. Well, what's um, wild is like Charter is, is not even doing that, that these are, we're finding this because we're literally pulling residential addresses from different census tracts almost at random. I mean, I, like, I, I kind of hate to admit the uh, wildness of this methodology <laughs> um, uh, and it, it kind of landed this way because it started very small and it just kind of snowballed, um, but literally on Google Maps, like going into a community zooming in until you can get to a residential address and plugging that address into mm -hmm. um, Spectrum's sales website. Which and, probably brings And, and noting what website. they're offering. Which, yeah, I probably. hope that they sue you. <laughs> I hope they Some, sue me too. Someone, <laughs> someone, someone needs to sue you. No, someone needs to get rid of these ridiculous terms because like we've run into this before and Harvard actually neglected to do a study at the uh, Berkman Klein Center, wonderful part of Harvard. Um, and they uh, they changed their methodology around uh, comparing prices because uh, the lawyers representing the school were nervous about having them break the terms of usage of those pricing things. And it's just ridiculous that in the United States of America, we can't get this. But this is actually the last thing we'll talk about for California specifically, maybe, which is, Shana, I saw that apparently... California might be requiring providers to share what they charge for internet access. Um, the, the legislature is considering that as a, as part of the, the mapping effort, which is genius. I don't know like, if free press has been talking about this for 10 years, like it's terrific. It might finally happen somewhere. I mean, we'll see that's we have the last three weeks of the legislature and, uh, and things go crazy in the last three weeks of the legislature here, like everywhere else. And we have all kinds. I, I feel like the I've worked in legislatures in 30 states and California is, uh, is, has some of the strangest pieces, including that up until the very end, you can gut and amend a bill. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and that's certainly happening. You have all the kind of leadership, uh, especially on the assembly side, those fights and who knows how that's going to play out. Um, and a bunch of bills are going to, win or lose in that and have nothing to do with anything else. Um, so we'll see. But there is a bill that um, the last round of amendments uh, did add both location, uh, location level reporting requirements on the ISPs and pricing. So um, I, I, there's a topic I wanted to bring up, but I'm curious if this will resonate. If this falls flat, we'll just we'll move on and we'll let you go, Shana. But I wanted you to if you're able to stick around for another couple minutes. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, we're, we're wrapping down the show. Um, I don't know. I felt like when I'm looking around and we've been talking with different folks at the local level, um, I feel like since the pandemic began, we have seen numerous efforts to deliver zero cost internet access to people. Travis, we've talked about this before. And I feel like the cost of internet access remains a significant challenge, but I think if we could wave a magic wand and get rid of that issue, 
we would find that we still had 75% of the people not connected. Um, and that's not to say that cost isn't an issue for those people, but it's like it's cost and something else. And, and I, I think, you know, a year or two ago, I believed it was more like if we could get rid of costs, we would get rid of more than half of the problem of urban challenges. And, uh, and I, I don't know, I feel like I'm changing on that. And Travis, you've said that you think it's different for a long time now, or it's an issue of relevance. Go ahead and get on your soapbox for a second. Well, you know, we've tried it, Chris. Uh, you know, we've tried to give internet away for free and there was very little interest in it. And so then, then we de determined, is it just lack of interest? Is it lack of technology? You know, is it, I mean, believe it or not, there's still people that aren't on online and they don't even see the value of being online. So you could give something away for nothing. And if nobody wants it, you know, that's the point. So Chris and I have tried this. We did a pilot project where we, we basically gave gigabit internet away just to see if it like solved all everyone's problems. And it didn't, it, you know, it's just one leg of a three-legged stool. I mean, if you don't Although know I'm how just, to, you know. Yeah, I mean, let's be clear. I do feel like National Digital Inclusion Alliance folks and others would say, well, if Chris and Travis show up at a place where nobody knows you and you're like, free internet, like people are going to be like, whatever. Like, I, And so like there are there are some challenges with the methodology that we used. Um, yeah, but but, for, for, but, but if the, the problem is it's easy for everybody just to go to price because yeah. nobody questions it. And you don't trust it. I mean, no matter what no, you say, you don't trust it. Yeah, if you're a reliable provider in the neighborhood, everybody's going to be like, "What's the catch? What are the T's and C's? Yeah. Like, what's going to happen?" Like, nobody trusts free in this world, unfortunately. This, this is where Chris and I argue all the time. He, you know, he thinks the government's here to solve problems. Um, show, show, showing up to somebody's house and saying, "Hi, I'm from the government, and we're going to give you free internet." <laughs> I don't know oh, why yeah, you yeah, think that. I think that. Up for that. Yeah, that's just a fabulous idea. Right. So I, I hate to be like a first time guest and um, and a contrarian, but at least in L.A., I don't know what this looks like uh, everywhere, but at least in the least well connected communities of L.A., uh, if you got I don't think it's free. I agree that free is a problem, um, but I think if you could get to ten dollars a month um, or something like that so that it isn't free, um, you would solve at least half of the connectivity issues. I mean, and this is based on all kinds of things, including um, programs to deliver free or next to free to like LAUSD families um, and that were oversubscribed almost immediately, uh, like those kinds of things. That's um, the school district, right? Yeah. I, and I think we have lots of good evidence that um, you would solve a massive chunk of the connectivity problem if you solved the price problem. But, but and, and, and in well, fairness, it's a it's a combination, right? And this is, um, uh, I digital inclusion folks um, like hate me when I say this, but I think that part of when we keep talking about the kind of LA the the three legs of the stool, um, what we fail to do there is talk about how they're actually connected, right? So like it, there is a price issue, but what we also hear from a lot of families, especially in underserved communities, they're like why would I spend even $10 a month on the AT&T 10-1 service that I'm offered when that $10 a month is wasted? Like I don't have, it's not fast enough or reliable enough service um, to be useful to me. So even though I technically have a $10 option, I'm not going to take advantage of it because it's, it, it is not at the kind of speed and reliability that I need. And so those things are I think all of these pieces are actually related in a way that we tend not to talk about them. 
But you Casey, know, I know that some, you've given this a lot of thought over the years. Well, not as much as a lot of the digital equity experts, and including Sheena, I'm sure. I'm sure. But um, you know, to Travis's earlier point, there's always going to be some population of people who are who are hard for us to fathom, but who just don't want it, and who have different lifestyles, who who um, you know, for whatever reason, even if it's free, even if it's ten dollars, even if it's good service, are just not going to take it, and. So are they, should we consider that a problem? Is there, or, or is there some? I don't think so. Of, Casey, let I me mean, interrupt for a second. I mean, I don't think anyone here. Let me just finish one, one last point. So employment, right? The, the, the Department of Labor looks at a full employment figure. Well, it's not 100% of America being employed. There's a, there's like a, what is it? Four or 5% or something like that who just aren't employed, but it's still considered full employment statistically, right? So what is that number in our world? Mm. Well, in California, it's 98%. And I don't know if that's the right number either. I mean, I, I agree. There's always going to be, so, maybe not always, for a while, <laughs> there's going to be a percentage of people, households who, for whatever reason, um, don't want it. Um, maybe they feel like they get it, what they need at work. Like we have a survey running right now. That there is a very small number of people, but they say, I, I'm online at work or when I'm not at work or when I'm like, when, when I'm at the library or at school or whatever, what I have on my phone is fine. Like there's always going to be that, that number. And I don't think we're worried about that number. Um, and that's why I said 50% and not hundred percent of the problem. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I do think, it, but you would get 50 and in some places, 75% like of the close that connectivity gap. If you could address the price plus value for that price um, together. And then of course, with the kind of devices and literacy attached. Pro tip, don't play with the power supply with your feet. Wow. <laughs> Noted. Um, <laughs> so, to that pro tip, I just wanted to ask. The, um, yeah, I just wanted to note that I, I feel like I, that there's, there's, I think we all agree um, more than this might have suggested. I know that I just missed the last couple of minutes, but I'm, um, I, I, I'm guessing that it's along the lines of, of, of what I would expect. And um, the, the thing that I want to raise is that I feel like there's a lot of people who are really invested in talking about the affordability issue. And I feel like that is accurate and we have a real problem. Um, but I feel like if we could wave a magic wand and solve the affordability issue, we'd have a lot more work to do than some people appreciate. And I think that's kind of the point. And what I think is interesting is I think affordability might be becoming more of a middle-class issue, right? Like I think the bead program, um, in Congress was recognizing this, the Biden administration is recognizing this, the whole like middle-class affordability plan. And that's because as long as we have these massive carriers, they recognize that they can raise our prices $5 a year forever and we will keep paying that most of us um and you know for low-income people it will squeeze some of them out but for many of us we'll just be paying more and more and and that is an issue as long as we have a broken market and so i i kind of wonder if affordability will actually be something that starts to gain more traction among more working class and middle class people that are connected um, and we have more work to do around digital skills and devices um for the the lower um income folks And fixed income, older people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, Thank you all for, um, I'm not getting rid of everything. I just want to thank you all for not just leaving as soon as I was gone. Um, 
We didn't even notice, Chris. What are you, you going to make here. of that? <laughs> <laughs> Ryan noticed, and I totally cool. appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Shana. Uh, oh, we, we, got, we got a good question. Oh, oh. Oh, okay. oh. From Juan Roman. Have you, have you raised your rates this year? We have not. Kim, you haven't raised your rates in like forever, right? I mean, we have not raised the rate. We have raised the speed, um, but a $65 uh, entry-level price point gets you $250 symmetrical. So, yeah, no, that's – we have And it's been that way for as long as I can remember, right? Uh, it started about when I started 11 years ago. We were like 50 meg symmetrical for $65, but we've increased the speed but kept the price uh, the same. How about you, Travis? Well, I didn't realize you guys were that expensive. So we, we've always been, you know, we no, have raised it, but, but, we're, but we're, we're, we, we are $60 this year. You know, one thing I want to comment though on this affordability that drives me crazy is why does affordability always have to be like some cheaper product? And it, it's even the attitude that I, that I, I see from the, the local, I always call them the government, but whatever, you know, the local folks is because their plan was like, oh, well, we're going to, we're going to provide low speed in or high or low cost internet, but it's going to be some Wi-Fi hotspot out in the hallway. And it's like, it's this, it's this completely, I guess for lack of a better garbage internet solution. Sure. It's cheap, but no one's going to use it. So I guess I, I want to leave the thought with price, the, the, the low cost internet product that's equal or good as the high quality. Cause again, our, our test that Chris and I did was gigabit symmetrical for free. Well, okay, there you go. Now we get we're getting rid of the conversation of if is it a, is a good product or not. Not this like ten by one or whatever it is. I mean, nobody wants that anymore. I think Travis like could not agree more. Yeah, I could think not agree more. It, it, you, just because you're economically disadvantaged doesn't mean you should be broadband disadvantaged. If we are going to lift people out of systematic poverty, it's not with the subpar internet, and that is what we have to change the conversation of the ten one conversation. I couldn't agree. Either. All right, but I, I, got, I got I got to hijack this real quick because I heard this statistic and I've been waiting oh, all week to ask Chris about this. Oh God! So, so is it true? Like for Minnesota, it would take about a billion and a half dollars to hook up everybody with high quality broadband across the state. Is, is that is that a reality? Um, I believe that number refers to the estimated cost to bring a high quality connection to households that have nothing today. It ignores the needs in the metro area. Okay. Okay. Or we could build a choo-choo train that goes about four miles from one part of town to the other. I just it really, is, I feel like you stabbed me in the back with this choo-choo train when you know that I have been opposed to that choo-choo train forever. And I so love choo-choo this trains. Is what I, this is what I find ironic. Can we, can we find a way to keep making Chris say choo-choo train? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is is this, this, the state will spend a billion and a half dollars on a train that's totally pointless, but won't spend a billion and a half dollars on high quality broadband for those well, that don't just, have it. That, just, that seems to be the problem to me. It's no, a it is. You're absolutely right. And I would say even beyond that, Travis, like I just, I'm um, the best independent camera store in Minneapolis and the Twin Cities, the whole like metro area is in Minneapolis. And I buy high end things there. And I look at my bill when I'm paying hundreds of dollars in tax for like, you know, a, a, a piece of equipment for my business. And I'm like, how much of this is going to the Viking Stadium? Right. You know, like how much of this, how much does the state put into the Viking stadium when that could have made sure that everyone had um, a $40 a month connection available to them, you know, or something along well, those lines. You want to talk about affordable broadband, two drinks, one water, one seltzer at the Viking stadium, 25 bucks. There's our problem. Not broadband pricing. So 
We're, we're going downhill, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is relevant. The choo-choo train yeah. in a whole minute, so yeah, we're, we're missing the boat here. The choo-choo really train also shut down my favorite bike trail, so I'm annoyed at that too. You know, I, I'm just convinced that these states really wanted to get serious about this. They could solve no, it in they a relatively short amount of time. It. That's the yeah. point. And that's why Shana's work is so important. And that's why we're trying yeah. to get other people to recognize this. Because the states, local leaders of large metros, states, and to some extent national figures, want to talk about this as though it's a major priority. But they do not want to act like it's a major priority. And I, and I say that knowing that they just Congress put forty two and a half billion dollars into broadband. Well, just for infra, rural infrastructure, like uh, on the order of many tens of billions more across it. But at the local level, I am seriously disappointed with how local leaders are responding to this. In some places, we do see them take it seriously. But I'm, I just talked with a major U.S. city and I was talking with people that are in that are working for the staff and uh, for staff in, a, in one of the agencies. They're not like super high up. And they were like, we're in charge of digital equity for the city because nobody cares. Um, they didn't say it exactly like that, but they were sort of like, you know, like we're not going to convince the mayor to give us a ton of money, but like, we're trying to do what we can. So what, what, what's the best we can do here? And that's the story in most major U S cities is that, Oh, when the cameras are on, it's a huge priority. But when it comes to making the budget, it is not a priority, right? That's the Travis. You talk about this every time you have a meeting with some of these folks. And we're not just going to say only Minneapolis necessarily, but like where they're like, Hey, Travis, how come you haven't solved all the problems yet? No, we're not giving you any support. Well, and it's, it's, yeah, I mean, that's just the reality of what goes on. It's, it's, they're just past the buck. And often I wonder if this is a problem that nobody really wants to solve because they, their whole career is talking about this problem. No, I don't it, think that's the case. I just think it's, it's, boy, so, you know, I, I, you, I don't know. Let's be clear. Is, well, Travis, you get elected to office. You have 10 things you want to do. You have three things you're going to work on. You have one thing you're actually going to accomplish. And that's what I don't know. Shana, you know a lot about public office. I don't think that's unfair. I think that's realistic to public life. I mean, and you, so, like, you know that I believe that this is as much a uh, mishandled political problem on the part of advocates as it is anything else. Mm -hmm. Like this, it will mm -hmm. not be treated as a priority. It will not get budgets. We will not get uh, local leaders saying no to their friends, the lobbyists. Uh None of those things <laughs> will happen unless and until there is some sort of political will, unless they see some sort of constituency for it among the people that are going to vote for them. Because at the end of the day, why and 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 I I can I couldn't make a good case for why a local official should prioritize this and put money towards this and piss off the lobbyists who give them money and help them get elected and and probably take money away from something else that is also a priority. I mean, we have one of the communities in LA, they're sort of having to juggle budget that they're trying to put towards this with like, they have a water system breakdown. <laughs> like, you know, and, and are you going to go back to your constituents and say, well, we're going to be slower on water because we're taking advantage of this moment to invest our matching funds in broadband. The only way you're going to do that is if you're talking to constituents who have been engaged and who care about it and who are going to say, yep, we got your back on that. So you know I, I think, think it's a political problem as much as anything else. I, I think the, the, the problem is different in large cities versus small and medium cities. And if you look around the country where you're seeing most of the action come from state and local fiscal recovery funds under ARPA, they're, it's, they're doing, uh, counties and, and smallish towns are doing all kinds of things with that money for broadband all, all the time. And you see it, in my experience, we've seen that much more in the smaller towns. Maybe things are a little simpler. Maybe they have less to worry about in terms of roads, or, or I'm not exactly sure what the, the reason for that is. 
but I, I don't think we can say that local governments are are really unable to, you know, do anything here. There's been a lot of activity, unprecedented activity over the last 18 months, I'd say. Right, Casey, I agree with you. I feel like my ire is directed at the fact that there are on the order of 25,000 local jurisdictions, and we have hundreds of them that are doing really good things. And the larger cities aren't doing very much. Go ahead, Kim. But don't you think that's because they saw the, they saw the problem firsthand during COVID? Whereas some of the bigger cities, I don't think necessarily saw it at the level that the smaller cities did. They, they, it was happening. They just didn't see it. I think maybe I, I just think it's because this happens to poor people, right? I mean, like they literally lost track of kids in every large school district. They don't know where they ended up, right? Like during when they closed down the schools. And it was sort of this thing of like, well, we sure feel bad about that. And some people really felt bad about that. And a lot of other people were just like, yeah, but I'm just going to go on with my life. It doesn't bother me. Like, <laughs> but, but I, that's the thing. Like, I talk to my friends every day. I go out and they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, this is what I do. And they're like, what? Why do we need this? Because the general population has no idea that this is really a problem. Unless you are in these very rural areas or these very urban centers that are up in like not the best demographics. Right. So or poor demographics. So I think that's the problem is the middle class or the average person has no idea the problem about broadband. When I tell people I was out sitting at a bar the other night eating a cup of soup and they were like, really, this is happening in this country? And you're just like, you have no idea. Or the fact that if we just had like, I mean, just, just to like, one of the things that I continue to think is the utility fee model, which is basically like, okay, well, like, what if we raised your taxes um, we built an open access fiber to everyone. We have robust competition. I know that there's, I'm glossing over a lot of challenges and problems, but like, and then your, your telecom bill for all the services you pay for goes down significantly more than your taxes go up. I feel like people are like, wait, we could do that. And it's like, yes, it's not even that difficult really from a well, so technical this point. This is where if any, any of my longtime friends are listening to this are going to be shocked because I, I, I am a cynic. Uh, I'm, I've been involved in politics for a really long time, too long to not be a cynic. Uh, so I'm shocked that these words are going to come out of my mouth. But I think you might be being too cynical. <laughs> um, and this might be partly because I'm rooted in L.A., where, um, you know, think about L.A. County less as a county and more as like a state or even a country. We have 88 different cities within the county. 65% of the county is unincorporated. We have five different school districts, hospital districts that are eligible to be broadband providers under the state code. I mean, there is- More people than half of the countries on earth. Yes, um, the county of LA is bigger than 19 states or the city of LA, excuse me, the city of LA is bigger than 19 states and that's one of the 88 cities in the county. So there are, if you're looking to find something that's happening anywhere in the country, you will find it in LA. We have rural areas, we have entirely unserved swaths, we have lots of very underserved swaths, we have, you know, wealthy suburbs, we have poor suburbs, all of it. Um, and what I'm seeing in LA County um, makes even my cynical heart um, sort of hopeful. There's just, there is actually a lot going on. Um, and there is like a really significant information gap, uh, you know, and part, partly what you're going to see at the local level. And I think the Kim's point about smaller cities versus bigger cities the thing that is true about all of them is that the only voices that they have heard on this for a very long time, on at least this infrastructure piece, um, have been telco lobbyists. Mm -hmm. And this, and as soon as you start to bring new perspectives, new information, I mean, Chris, I bring an ILSR, Muni Networks report, to 
probably a local elected once a week. Um, and it and it always, every single time, results in a follow-up meeting. And we have, I think, six different applications for technical assistance funding in process right now and that I'm working on, and none of them are the city or county of LA. They're all smaller cities or school districts or um, partnerships between a school district and a city. Um, so I think- right. I think well, cynicism I, is easy on this and like it is easy to look at and say like there's lots of people who aren't doing anything or enough because they don't care because it really only affects poor people. Um, but I think I, I think if you dig a little bit again, maybe maybe I'm lucky to be in L.A. and and maybe it's partly because I'm beating down doors and making people pay attention. <laughs> but um, I don't think that's it. Like I like I'm seeing a lot more. Um, kind of hopeful action. Don't you think that like the middle class or the like the average person needs to have this conversation to kind yes. of move forward as well? And that's what I'm saying is how do we educate this, you know, middle class population who doesn't see it as a problem to help push this? Well, this that's, goal? I think that's important. And that's where I, I want to say a couple of things and we're gonna have to come to a close here. Um, but I, I want to say, I hate being cynical um, because I do feel like it's a permission structure. It's you a, in, into our good ear here. I Travis, I think I think you're going to enjoy where I'm going with this. Like, okay, I, I want to make one sure one of the things that drives me nuts is like, I think the people who are on this call, the five of us, because I know all of you, like we can be cynical, and and, and we've earned that right because we're out doing shit, mm -hmm. right? Like we're out working hard and we're frustrated and we're blowing off steam. What I hate to see is that like I'm giving permission for other people who aren't tuning in to connect this. What show? Connect this, um, you know, every other week, and 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 I feel like that's one of the concerns is that like, you know, I feel like some of this is blowing off steam, but like like people need to be out there doing stuff, and and I feel like on all the social issues that people work on, I feel like there's a sense of well, if I could just get everyone's attention and have them listen to me for some period of time, I could convince them, and we could really you know solve this problem. Yes, probably, <laughs> but like that's not where it happens, and so that. This is where, you know, what we're doing at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, we've just unveiled two programs and, um, and we are trying to focus on this as we're doing this work. We're trying to continue doing the research and the writing about what's happening at the local level and sharing that. But we're really trying to help light those fires locally by helping people get better educated and feel more confident to engage in these conversations. And, and I and challenge others to do that too, because like Kim said, you know, like, um, people aren't going to talk about it at the bars unless we make it accessible to them. And, um, and that's one of the things that we have to do. And I, and I think all each of us is doing that. And so, you know, I feel comfortable having this conversation with you. I would be supremely annoyed if there was just some, you know, um, uh, Twitter troll who I also agree with on many issues who was here and, and being cynical. I'd be like, get off your butt and do something. <laughs> like, <laughs> so Anyway, that's the that's the kind of the reaction. I, I agree with what Shana said, and I think that's important. Um, I I would like to continue this conversation, but I also feel like um, we have to draw it to a close. We did not get to my little pet thing about the streaming TV thing. We're going to bring that up on a on a future call about um, uh, about just talking seriously about like um, people who are down on streaming because the costs are going up um, and they can't get everything they want from one service. Boo hoo. Um, and uh, that will be a future conversation. And uh, but I don't know when it'll be. We're going to have to change our normal times for a little bit because uh, we're hitting into fall photography season and I have too many events on Thursday afternoons and evenings to be able to do the show on Thursday afternoons and evenings. So um, please stay tuned to social media. We will be um, continuing to do these shows as we can, uh, but uh, it may be at 
at uh, irregular times until I get through some of these uh, fall sports, unfortunately, in my alter ego life of, uh, of aspiring to um, work for Sports Illustrated. So um, thank you all so much. Um, Shana, I really appreciate all your time and your um, grounding us in in that uh, uh, optimism again at the end, rather than just all this complaining and whatnot. Uh, Casey, uh, I'm, I really appreciate your time today and um, and hoping that we can get you back on again in the future to talk more about um, all, all these things that, that you read about every week. I think you're better read on broadband issues than anyone else for doing that newsletter. Uh, and then Kim and Travis, uh, deeply appreciate once again, you all coming on and, and having this conversation. So uh, with that, uh, we're going to draw to a close and say thank you for tuning in to another episode of Connect This. Connect This.